When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this week's episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. It was recorded at the ACAST studio in East London and features author and activist Naomi Klein in conversation with the BBC economics editor Kamal Ahmed. They were discussing the themes of her new bestseller, No Is Not Enough, Defeating the New Shock Politics. We hope you enjoy listening. Naomi, uh, welcome. Um, Let's kick off with trying to understand the events of the last year uh, in America and Donald Trump. A lot of your book is about Donald Trump. Can you try to explain to us where you think the phenomenon of Trump came from? Absolutely, I'll try. It's complicated. (laughs) And and, and, and I do see the book as, as... as an attempt to explore the roads that led to Trump, as opposed to just get into his head, which is frankly a place I don't want to spend that much time. You know, I think there's been a lot of psychologizing of him and pathologizing, and 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 I'm going to leave that to other people. Um, what I what I think is important is is not to treat him like this bolt from the blue, this sort of alien invader. Because there is this sense, particularly in liberal circles, of, of Trump, because he's so bizarre, he's so extreme. We have never we have never seen a president like this, certainly in, in terms of the, the manners and just the absolutely unconstrained uh, um, use of social media. So we're in this constant state of shock. Like, did he really just do that? Like, and, and everyone's sharing and, and gasping, uh, whatever it is. Um, and then, of course, you have the investigations going on, which is a weird kind of reality TV show where it's like, well, who's going to get voted off the island today? First, it's the FBI director. Maybe it's the guy investigating the firing of the FBI. Maybe it's Trump. Like, maybe it's going to be maybe we're going to vote the president off the island, find out after these commercials. News ratings have never been higher, you know. It is the merger of reality television and news in in a really extreme way. So one of the roads that led to Trump, I believe, uh, is, is the the takeover of so much of, of U.S. news coverage uh, uh, by the aesthetics of, uh, of, of infotainment, reality TV. I mean, let's not forget, you know, C- CNN had a 
an actual hologram uh, um, in in their election covers, like a Star Wars style Obi Wan Kenobi. Um, and there was shockingly little coverage, not just in the last presidential election campaign, but the one before that, about actual exploration of the the, the policies, the platforms of the various candidates doing the work of explaining how policies impact the lives of viewers and voters and why one should care in favor of horse race coverage, who's ahead in the polls, who said what about whom, and all of this sort of very personal kind of drama. And so that created a perfect context for Trump to step in because he is a full-fledged reality TV show star. He knows how to do it. He also is a master of another... um, fake reality genre, and that's professional wrestling, which is something that most liberals don't really understand, but is a huge cultural force in the United States. And what professional uh, wrestling understands is the value of a really good insult. Of course, reality TV understands it too, you know, hair pulling and all of that. And and this is what he did, you know, giving these nicknames, you know, insulting nicknames to his rivals, Lion Ted, Killer Hillary. This is straight WWE wrestling stuff, you know. He turned his rallies into... Uh, some weird cross between a wrestling uh, uh, match and a pogrom. I don't know. I mean, it was really strange for journalists because the journalists would be in this pit and then Trump would turn the crowd against the journalists, right? In the same way that that in a wrestling match, um, the whole crowd is turned against the villain, right? So you need villains and you need heroes. And of course, Trump played the role of the hero. So that's that's one road that led to Trump. There are a lot of roads that led to Trump. Because what, what's interesting, so he, he sort of fits this reality TV sort of uh, uh, theme, big theme. But there's a difference, isn't there, between, between being successful on The Apprentice and being the president of the United States. What I, what I still I think also so what a lot of people maybe struggle with is people know that there is a difference between those two things, being on The Apprentice running the Trump businesses around the world or the Trump brand around the world and voting for someone to lead the largest economy in the world. You why? why know the difference. Well, but, but are you saying the voters couldn't, couldn't see that or, or, or were, were unable to? Because I think a lot of people who maybe supported Trump would say, well, no, hang on a minute. Yeah, we get that. We get that, that it's all a bit of a game, that it, the insults, but that's not a reason to vote for him. We voted for him because the previous lot have failed. Right. So I think one of the major roads, one of the highways that led to Trump, uh, not a side road, but, 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 a, but a really major throughway, um, was the, the failure of the whole political class, including the Democrats, right? So Trump captured this anti-establishment mood, this desire to raise a middle finger to Washington. Um, and, I, and I really b- believe that he did not win this election, that Hillary Clinton lost it. And, and, you know, this is not to relitigate the, the the election. And there's, you know, there's been a lot of that. But I think it is important just to look at the numbers and understand that he was not elected with this massive wave of enthusiasm and support. But there, was and there was depressed turnout on the Democratic yeah. side. Um, the, in key states, Hillary Clinton had a much lower turnout in terms just the ability to mobilize and motivate the Democratic base compared to Obama in 2012 and Obama in 20, uh, 2008, even with this cartoonish villain, which they were counting on. They were counting on being able to, to, to marshal fear of Donald Trump to mobilize their base. But because they did not have enough of an offer 
that spoke to the same thing Trump was speaking to, right, which is economic insecurity, feeling invisible, um, tangible losses in standard of living. People just looked at it and just tuned out, and more people didn't vote than voted for either candidate. Uh, and, And this is a real democratic crisis. But there's something else, you know, I, I appreciate your skepticism around that people couldn't possibly have thought that just the fact that he ran a business could mean he could run the government. But I, I do believe that one of the roads that led to Trump was the fact that we have been bestowing magical powers onto the billionaires of this world and, and projecting onto them um, a quasi-godlike ability to solve all of our collective problems simply because they are rich. I mean, look at Bill Gates. And Bill Gates is a liberal hero, right? He is not a conservative hero. And I'm not knocking his charity or his generosity, but I am saying that we that problems that we used to think we could solve through taxing <laughs> the wealthy and pooling those resources and democratically addressing collective crises, whether environmental crises or uh, health crises, education crises, we are now outsourcing a lot of this to foundations, to very wealthy individuals. I mean, look at the role that Bill Gates plays in fighting infectious diseases, um, in changing Africa's agricultural system. He has been given a... There are Americans who work in the education system who will say that Bill Gates and his foundation has significantly more power than the Department of Education. Why? He, he's, is that a bad thing, Naomi? Do you feel – because he would say or people who support him would say, well, we get great results in a way that maybe yeah. maybe the states, the governments – I mean, not the United States – the governments haven't been able to do over many decades. And the reason billionaires have come in to fill a vacuum which wasn't being successfully filled and wasn't being successfully tackled by uh, governments because governments became uh, wrapped up in other diplomatic rows and things wouldn't happen because one country didn't like another country or had other interests to battle, whereas billionaires or whoever they may be – maybe cut through some of that. Well, that's the promise. And I think there are things that billionaires are able to do well because of what you're describing, right? And, you know, one would be vaccines. You know, I think that that is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a more straightforward problem to solve. But when you get into something like the education system or a healthcare system that doesn't have the infrastructure to deliver those vaccines, I think Billionaires like Bill Gates bring some really dangerous baggage. I mean, Bill Gates is always looking, and he uses this phrase all the time, he's looking for the magic bullet. You know, he's looking, their brains are hardwired to look for the killer app. You know, you come from software, that's what you want. And there's a real allergy to any kind of system, uh, you know, whether it is the, the public education system or the public health care system, because that's too burdensome. And this is the disruptor stage of capitalism. And when they enter these, these, these fields, they can do a lot of damage. And there's been a huge amount written. And in, indeed, the Gates Foundation has acknowledged that their interventions in the U.S. education system have resulted in big failures um, because of this desire to just look for that one quick fix. So the argument I'm making is, is that it is not so far off in terms of the logic to go from, well, because because Bill Gates is one of the three richest people on this planet, uh, depending on the list of the various, various year, um, 
and because he excels in, in in a particular area, the building of a software company, we therefore are going to imagine that he can that, that that he will do magical things in all of these other areas in which he does not have very much expertise. And he runs this foundation with his wife and his father and and Warren Buffett. You know, it's it's not democracy. So how different is that? It's. I mean, I, what I'm what I'm arguing, and I realize this is a bit controversial, is that Trump is just a kind of a crasser version of what we have been doing on the liberal side of the political spectrum in this billionaire savior complex. He stood before the American people and said, vote for me, I'm rich. And Jared, my son-in-law, is rich too, so I'm just going to let him solve Middle East peace. You know, He's going to get us Middle East peace. He's going to oversee the troops in Iraq. <clears throat> he's going to make government run more like a business. I mean, Jared's portfolio has become a running joke in the American media because he's just been given so many responsibilities. His single qualifications for this are that he's related to Donald Trump and that he's an heir to a great fortune. But this is sort of a parody version of what we've been doing by saying, well, Richard Branson's going to solve climate change and you know, Bill Gates will... Will solve the global health crisis. I mean, you talk about in the book about about Trump as a brand, and you have obviously written in the past very passionately about how these super brands, these hollow brands, as you've uh, described them, have sort of bestride the world in not a not a benign uh, way. Just to explain to me what what you mean by Trump as a brand. So. Um, coming on 20 years ago, which makes me feel very old and <laughs> makes some of my readers feel very old as well, I published a book called No Logo, um, which was about a shift that was happening in the corporate world where a, a we start to see a new kind of company in the 1990s that, 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 were, that was really a departure from the traditional brand name uh, uh, multinational company that saw itself primarily as a producer of products that would then put a nice logo on those products to differentiate it from other products, pour money into marketing so consumers would be willing to pay a premium for those products, but still saw itself as a manufacturer. So in that sense, was not hollow. They owned many factories. They had huge workforces around the world. Now, what happened in the late 1980s is that this method of advertising stopped working as well as it used to. And one of the most um, re-quoted quotes in No Logo is one from an advertising executive who said, consumers are like roaches. You spray them and spray them and they become immune after a while. You can see why that made it the rounds because, of course, people don't like to find out that marketers see them as cockroaches. (laughs) Vivian Westwood put it on a T-shirt, which put the whole thing at a sort of surreal branding level. <laughs> yeah, someone use anti branding for pro branding. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so yeah. So, it, so, so then uh, Nike comes along and says, "Well, we're not a shoe company. We're not. We're not uh, a trainer company. We are about the idea of transcendence through sports. We are about the idea of just do it, being your best self. We are. We are selling an idea, and our products are." a tableau on which we project that idea, but our true product is our brand. And we can extend that brand into pretty much any product and build this sort of branded cocoon. So huge amounts of money start being poured into these brand extensions, these what what came to be called lifestyle brands, because they weren't just selling uh, the trainer or the t-shirt. They were selling a a, a way of life and a big idea. The flip side of this, and, and this is what No Logo was about, was... A, a divestment from the world of work and the world of manufacturing. 
Nike did not own a single factory. That's what made them different than the companies they were competing with. All their competitors started emulating them, but you know, Adidas and Reeboks, they own their own factories. Nike was light. They were all about the image, all about the brand, and they, they, they produced their products through a web of contractors and subcontractors, just like pretty much every major brand does today. But this was a new phenomenon. So Trump applied this to real estate. Um, he originally was a bricks and mortar real estate guy who built actual buildings and bought actual buildings um, and just had this limitless desire to see his name up in gold letters, <laughs> bottomless desire, um, and a real knack for self-promotion. So in the 1980s, he turned his personal life into a live-action soap opera um, and turned himself into a star by, by, by deliberately turning his extramarital affair on his first wife, Ivana, with his um, second wife, Marla Maples, uh, in, into this endless drama. And this is important to understand. At the time, he, he told an interviewer, the show is Trump, and it's sold out everywhere. Because this is what made him. You know, he was not... A, a, a celebrity before this soap opera. So it's important to understand this about Trump because uh, he understands the value of a show and distraction and, and what that gives him. And one of the things it gave him, it always gave him, was distraction from any real examination of the underlying weaknesses of his business model because, you know, he leaves a trail of bankruptcies behind him, right? But he's constantly building up his name, building up his brand. So the real shift for him was when he got The Apprentice, um, and, and this was just branding heaven, <laughs> branding nirvana. He, he's not paying to advertise his brand. He's being paid by a major t network to showcase the meaning of his brand, which is the power and wealth uh, of uh, behind Trump, behind the name Trump, because this is what he's selling, absolute power through wealth. And... Um, and so at this point, he basically stops building buildings, and he gets into the business of just selling the name Trump to developers around the world uh, who pay him tens of millions of dollars for the privilege of putting the golden Trump name on their condo towers, on their uh, hotels. So he still has a few flagship properties like Mar-a-Lago and Trump Tower in New York, but he is a hollow brand that is extended into all of these sub-brands, ties, suits, bottled water, steaks, university, books... Um, and now I would argue he has extended in. Is he the first to the do that? Is he the, <laughs> is he the first to move from? You've talked interestingly about you. You write interestingly and spoken interestingly about Bill Gates has has transferred maybe the Gates brand from running a successful um, uh, computer business to uh, running successful or otherwise um uh his foundation so he's moved in one way but trump has done the ultimate brand move hasn't he from being a brand in business to being a brand in politics is he the first person to do that i think he is i mean he is the first co fully commercialized super brand to be US is he the president. first of many or is, or is he, is he, he could well be because look, I mean, the Democrats are talking about, well, maybe we should try to convince Mark Zuckerberg to run against him. And he's kind of acting like he's taking it seriously. He's doing some things that look a lot more like what a. Well, he's doing his great journey, isn't he? Jesus like around the states of America to hear the, people's, <laughs> yeah. hear the people's pain. <laughs> uh, yeah, he is. Um, and this is, this is politician behavior. Um, there, there's talk of getting Oprah to run against him. So yeah, he is the first, but not because. You know, he, he's such an original thinker, but but simply because his business model is relatively new, right? This we didn't have 
companies built around an individual personality that were hollow in this way that were all their their site of construction was marketing right so it's not about the building for Trump it's about it's not about the building of the buildings it's about the building of the name Trump and the meaning behind it and then selling that and translating that into wealth that's a new business model so of course he would be the first U- US president to make it he's not the first US president with business interests no, of course not. but this is a different business model so and and it it, it it means that every time you and I say the word Trump we're helping him um, okay <laughs> we are <laughs> well, it's true because um, we can't escape it because because the, he's now swallowed the US government into his brand he hasn't divested they've increased fees at Mar-a-Lago they've doubled fees at Mar-a-Lago they're continuing to expand their brand into new markets they're now launching a new chain of hotels in the United States that is targeted to the kind of holiday in bracket market as opposed to uh, the the luxury market because so many Trump voters can't afford uh, that uh, to stay at a Trump hotel or go to a Trump go- golf club, but they could stay at a what's the, the new brand is. So American he sees Idea. the presidency as a as a marketing opportunity. Well, it absolutely is. In fact, his sons, who are launching this new hotel chain, said that they got the idea for it when they were on the campaign trail <clears throat> with their father, and apparently had the most traumatic experience of their life, which was sa- staying at a Holiday Inn Express. Um, this is the worst thing that had ever happened to the Trumps sons and that gave them an idea for a new hotel chain and um, and they are launching it in the state of Mississippi where Trump won over Hillary by 18 points so they're using they use the campaign trail for market research they use the election results as consumer data it's a complete merger of the Trump organization and and the, and the presidency now Naomi you surprisingly for you in 2016 you actually endorsed a candidate also said you supported Bernie Sanders. Why do you think he didn't win? Um, so I, you know, I, I generally don't, you know, get into endorsing candidates. Um, I was, I was, I was passionate about Bernie Sanders's platform because on climate change, which is an issue that I've done a lot of work on, um, you know, it, he he was the first presidential candidate that I've ever seen who had a platform that was actually in line with what scientists are telling us we need to do, the kind of rapid transition, not just sort of the art of the possible and just sort of let's jam the policies into how we, what we've defined as politically possible, but let us actually listen to what is politically necessary and try to change the politics. Seeing as we can't change the laws of nature, maybe we can change the laws of politics a little bit. And so he, you know, he, he was advocating 100% renewable energy by mid-century, uh, ban on fracking, no new fossil fuel uh, leases on federal lands, um, which is a very big deal. Um, so why didn't he win? Why didn't he win the primary? Because I, I, it, what the polls show is that if he had won the primary against Hillary in a one-to-one race against Trump, he had a better shot than Hillary, and that the polls show he would have won. Now, a lot of people discount those polls and, and say that, well, that's just because we haven't seen the full uh, right-wing attack machine go after him. But I think it's interesting talking about that here in the UK because Jeremy Corbyn had the full attack machine trained on him and it only seemed to make him stronger. It gave him superpowers. So I don't think we can take for granted that that attack machine works in the same way that it used to uh, because there's uh, so much suspicion, not just of politicians, but the sort of whole expert class and indeed of media as well. So 
so Bernie may well have won against Trump if he'd had the chance, but he didn't win against Hillary. And I think that was a combination of factors. But the one I'm most interested in, because I think it's the one that 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 we can learn the most from, is that Bernie was not was not able to connect sufficiently with black voters, with Latino voters, and with women voters who were not millennials. He, among millennials, like Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie had it in the bag, and it was a racially diverse coalition. It was a it was a gender diverse coalition. But when it came to older voters, and one has to reach those older voters, I think there was a lot of suspicion that he saw. Um, he saw issues of race and gender as kind of tacked on and that the only thing that mattered was economics. So I say it's important to understand this because I think that if there is a chance of of building a a winning progressive coalition, it has to do much better in developing a true synthesis, which is different than a laundry list. You know, politicians are very good at just making long lists and sort of checking off. Oh, I said that about that group there. But, But really an integrated analysis of what role race plays in building this incredibly unequal economic system that Bernie was what made the center of his campaign. I I think he was great on economic inequality, but I don't think he sufficiently integrated just how race is used and has always been used in the United States to entrench that inequality, dating back to slavery, but continuing in how austerity politics are sold in the United States and have always been sold. It's always been about telling white voters that black and brown people are abusing the system off their tax dollars. It's always been this divide and conquer message. And I think if we have political uh, projects and leaders, because it isn't just about the leader, who can really connect the dots, I think we can build a very broad tent. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
that could win because Bernie came close. I want to come on, Naomi, towards the end. You, you have a sort of almost a manifesto at the end about the type of um, arguments you believe could sort of reseize the agenda from um, uh, the one maybe put forward by Donald Trump. But just to keep focused on the president for, for the moment, um, you wrote a book called The Shock Doctrine. 10 years ago about disaster capitalism and the use of shock to keep almost to keep people in a sense of of of, of sort of uh horror and that therefore they keep voting for things that may not ultimately uh, be good for either them or for the economies or frankly as you would argue for the environment do you think that donald trump has um deployed those type of shock tactics tactics to maintain his sort of power because what i'm struck by is that every every controversy is turned around somehow to almost be like an advantage for him in a way that, I mean, I've been reporting on politics for many years, 10, 20 years ago, you would have thought would be, would see the destruction of any leader to survive the types of controversies that he has faced. But he seems to have made those, maybe it's a wrestling move, he's made those attacks into a strength for him. He has. And I think it is a bit of a wrestling move, right? In the sense of if you if, if you use these techniques um, from these pseudo reality uh, spaces like pro wrestling and, 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 and reality television and, and indeed marketing and apply them to politics, these are all uh, spaces that are very tribal, right? I mean, you choose your team and you stick with your team and you cheer for your guy, right? And so the, their narrative is just there's a vast conspiracy. Um, uh, against their president uh, by the other team. Uh, and it's a witch hunt. And this is why Trump is constantly sort of tweeting against the media and putting out that narrative because it, it, it fits it. But the other piece of it is the brand, right? I mean, we talked about how, how Trump emulated the business model of companies like Nike who, you know, stopped building, making the products and, and started building their brand. The difference with Trump is that the brands that I wrote about in No Logo we're, we're selling progressive ideas for the most part, right? Trend, you know, this idea of being your best self um, uh, in the case of Nike or community. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. Those kind of words were I often. Mean, Apple was selling us yeah. revolution. You know, that was, th- you know, think different with Martin Luther King and Gandhi and all of these revolutionary figures, right? But the problem with Trump is that he built a brand around a big idea that was be, you know, step on everyone and and land at the top. I mean, his his brand idea is impunity through wealth. It's an immoral brand. So you can't catch him out uh, lying, doing any of the things that you would expect uh, to catch out a political figure. He's, he's not playing by the rules of politics. He's playing by the rules of branding. And the rules of branding are, say, you have to be true to your brand. You have to be consistent to your brand image. And he is being consistent, right? I mean, he said on the a campaign trail, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. Uh, he's, you know, on that Access Hollywood tape, where he was grabbing, talk, bragging about how he could grab women, um, he said, they let you do it. Right. This is his his boast is I can do whatever I want because I'm so rich and I'm going to help you get become like me. That's what he's been selling through his books, The Art of the Deal and all this various ones that followed. That's what he was selling in The Apprentice. I'm going to pick one of you and I'm going to bring you up in that elevator in the sky and you're going to be part of the winning team. Right. So everything that you might think as a journalist that you could catch Trump out on actually makes him stronger because everything he gets away with just confirms his power. (laughs) So that's a problem. Um, But 
I, you know, I do think he he is he is vulnerable. But I think the only thing that's going to beat Trump, honestly, is a better product. You know, is something. And I say that obviously a bit tongue in cheek because I, you know, I think it is it's not it's not about marketing. But I think the Democrats can't just run an anti campaign against Trump that sort of tries to expose him as a fraud. They need to. They need to put the real thing out there in the marketplace. They need an economic project that is going to address people's daily needs, that is seriously going to create jobs, not create, you know, sort of show uh, and marketing around jobs, but but actually does it, um, that is going to deliver health care better than Obamacare. And this is why there's increased momentum for single-payer universal health care in, in the United States. Um, that is going to renegotiate trade deals in the interests of workers, not in the interests of corporations, which is what Trump is planning on doing. Do you, do you think, Naomi, that or what do you put his pop, Trump's popularity down to? Do, do we get the leaders we deserve? I think that all roads were leading to Trump. <laughs> And, and and not just in the United States. But for a lot of people, he's popular. I know you you speak quite interestingly in the opening of your book about the horror you felt. You were actually abroad. You were in Australia, so it was, yeah. it was a weird time of day for you. But you you talk about the sort of in texting your friends and my God, he won. You know. Uh, but for a lot of people, the next day was kind of our guy. He wanted to kick <laughs> over. You know, the Washington establishment. All these people who said they were going to make my life better, but my life isn't better. I voted for this guy. Okay, he's controversial, but my guy won, and they felt good about that, didn't they? They did, but they are not a majority of Americans. He did not win the popular vote, and as I said, you know, more people didn't vote at all. So he he represents a minority of the country. That and within that, I think it is it it is possible to reach. A, a, a significant slice of, of the Trump base who voted for Obama in 2012 and, and voted for him in 2008 and just wanted to raise the middle finger. You know, it's interesting because I was, you know, the first piece of fake news or alternative fact of the Trump administration was this question of how many people were at inauguration, right? Because Trump wanted it to have been this huge party celebrating that their guy actually won. But it was this weird non-event. And I was in Washington for inauguration. And it was interesting because you would think that at least Team Trump would have been there, you know, rejoicing. But there was something so anticlimactic about it. And it was like it was as if this whole project doesn't really believe in itself. Uh, I don't think he is that strong. Uh, but I think it is incredibly dangerous to have a political strategy, and this is why I called the book No is Not Enough, of just being anti-Trump. And I think the Democrats actually believe that, that that that's enough, or not, not all of them. There are some, you know, terrific Democrats who are trying to change the subject to healthcare, to jobs, to their own agenda. But it's clear that the really powerful people in that party believe that the best strategy is just to focus on impeaching Trump, and then running in 2018 for for congressional next congressional election on a on a campaign of elect us so we can impeach Donald Trump. And I don't think that will work. I don't think just purely negative anti-Trump campaigning can work. I think what we saw in the UK with Jeremy Corbyn's campaign is when you put a manifesto before the public that speaks to their daily needs and captures their imagination, that's when you galvanize people who weren't even planning to vote at all. And um, I hope that can happen in, in the US. Do you think that um, there could therefore be a backlash against Trump if the offers he has made, the fact that he's going to create this new America, particularly bringing back the manufacturing jobs? jobs. I traveled quite a bit around America um, during the campaign. And Lots of people who came from very poor 
areas really believed that this guy would somehow bring back steel jobs to Manesson, Pennsylvania, and that they felt they had been done over by the establishment, which is why this notion of draining the Washington swamp sort of played so loudly. What will be the reaction if that doesn't come to pass? So my great fear is that when Trump's economic promises prove to be hollow, and, and, you know, I think what he's counting on is just being able to kind of put on a marketing show about uh, an insignificant number of jobs that he's able to bring back. This is what he's already started to do. He did it with the carrier plant, the air conditioning plant. And this is what he's always done in his business, right, as sort of like of, of – it's show over substance. You know, when he was going bankrupt with his casinos in Atlantic City, um, he, he rather than deal with the underlying unsoundness of his business model, he invited his bankers and investors to Atlantic City and came out in front of them to the, the theme song of Rocky, wearing satin shorts and boxing gloves, and boxed through a piece of paper, a paper wall, and just said, like, I'm back. He, like, he thinks he can deal with 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 uh, real economic crises by putting on a show. And the, it has worked. The unfortunate thing is it has worked for him up until now because he's always been bailed out at the last minute. His father bails him out, which is what happened in Atlantic City. Then The Apprentice bailed him out just when he was really about to tank his business. Suddenly he was given this gift of The Apprentice. So he thinks he's going to be able to do it with politics, but it isn't true. People know whether they have a job or not. You know, they know if they have health care or not. What scares me is that he wasn't just promising jobs. He was promising a return to power on many different levels to white America, right? So he he was promising a return to economic stability, but he was also promising a return to a elite position over people of color, over women, to men, promising that to men. So it was, it was, um, it was, a, it was a toxic cocktail that combined speaking to a real economic insecurity um, with speaking to uh, you know changes that 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 are that are that are inevitable, <laughs> um, and you know I think. It's illegitimate for white men to believe that they deserve to have that elevated position over women and people of color. But I don't think it's illegitimate for workers to believe they have a right to some kind of economic security and the ability to have a wage to but support their family. He crunched the two together, you think? He, yeah. he mixed it all together and stirred. So did Marine Le Pen. You know, so to some extent did the Brexit campaigners, some of them. Um, and we've seen this toxic mixture, right? So what worries me is that as the economic promises prove themselves to be hollow, because the truth is that Trump's actual economic project, what he is doing with the rest of the Republican Party, as all eyes are fixed on the Trump show, is is introducing policies, whether it's health care, tax, his infrastructure plan, um, his attacks on regulation, that are really about systematically transferring wealth upwards. Um, and, And as that agenda, and we see it with his appointments, the fact that he's appointed five Goldman Sachs former executives to his cabinet um, after campaigning saying I'm going to drain the swamp and attacking his opponents for being too close to Goldman Sachs. I mean, the whole thing is an illusion. But as it falls apart and as he is exposed as a fraud, as a job creator and as the man who's going to you know, bring back those steel jobs, he will double down on the racism. You know, he will, that will be the only thing he has to offer. And so he will have to become more vicious. And this is why it is imperative. It is such a moral urgency for progressives to get their act together and put forward 
a political project that speaks to that economic pain and severs it from the racism and the misogyny that is at the heart of the Trump project. Do you think it is always bad? It's quite interesting. You, you do talk in pretty critical terms about Rex Tillerson and ExxonMobil and Goldman Sachs. Um, I've covered a lot of these people and I've interviewed some of them. I've interviewed Gary Cohn a couple of times. Do you think these people are just bad people who shouldn't be involved in politics? Because you go to Goldman Sachs. I mean, these, these are not evil folk. Well, OK, I do. You go to, these are not evil folk. They, are, they have a job to do. They do it. Goldman Sachs is an incredibly successful um, organisation, uh, bank. Um, the tone of your book there is very critical. Is there any role for business leaders in politics to give a bit back, to show that they can actually have a public At this point uh, in history, I would say unequivocally that they have far too much power. And that if there is one lesson of the 2008 financial crisis is that we need politicians and regulators who are truly independent, who will regulate Goldman Sachs. Um, And to bring in Goldman Sachs and merge the government with them in the way that Trump has. And he didn't start this. He just took the mask off and stopped. Government Sachs, as it's been known. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) but it was known before Trump came along. But, but, um, you know, this is incredibly reckless. And lo and behold, they they are in the midst of dismantling Dodd-Frank, which is the piece of you know legislation that was supposed to prevent another 2008 financial crisis. And the part that they are most determined to dismantle is the part that was supposed to prevent taxpayers from being stuck with the bill for another bailout because the banks weren't broken up and they're still too big to fail. So I think it's a terrible idea. <laughs> and that's not to say that they shouldn't run banks, uh, but they absolutely should not run the government. I'm pretty clear about that. Um, and there are cases in which I think that they shouldn't run banks either. Uh, so there's that. Yeah. Um, as far as Exxon is concerned, I mean, I think it's incredibly alarming that, uh, that, that Trump appointed Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. This is a company that in the 1970s and 80s was doing cutting-edge research into climate science, using their oil tankers to take CO2 samples and measure and, and, and knew exactly what was happening, was publishing peer review, in peer-reviewed journals about the reality of climate change, just how urgent it was, and then had this about-face in, uh, in, the, in the 90s and, and in the aughts where they became probably the major funder of the doubt machine of uh, pouring money into think tanks uh, like the American Enterprise Institute, the Heartland Institute, that were just about spreading so-called doubt about the reality of the science they themselves had engaged in. And that's why before uh, Trump was elected, Exxon was under investigation by the state's state attorneys general in New York, Massachusetts and California and by the SEC for allegedly misleading their shareholders and the public about what they knew about climate change when. So the idea that 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 guy who was CEO of that company who worked there for his entire adult life and was here during this whole period is now, uh, you know, at the wheel of the State Department is just extraordinary. One of the many things we are not (laughs) focusing on while we focus on the Trump show. (laughs) Naomi, you've drawn some parallels with events around the world, um, some parallels with what's happened in America. Obviously, here in Britain, um, we've had the Brexit referendum. Uh, People have voted to leave the European Union. Are, Are there connections between that type of event and the American presidential election? I think there are 
connections in this way in which real economic insecurity, um, a feeling of a loss of control, uh, a hollowing out of democracy because it feels like remote bureaucracies are making all the decisions and, 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 and you don't have control over really important l- l- levers of policy. Um, that's, and mixing that with just sort of anti-anything international, including people. Um, I mean, for me, it's very hard to watch this because I was part of what was used to be called the anti-globalization movement, and we would always correct and say, no, we're not anti-globalization. We are anti-corporate, anti-corporate globalization. We are against the, the globalization, the global export of a very particular economic project, privatization, deregulation, that basically the, the Reagan-Thatcher economic project exported to every corner of the globe and locked in through these trade deals. And that was an international and internationalist movement. It was open to the world. It was not nationalist and protectionist, although it was often caricatured in that way. But I believe that the reason why more reactionary uh, anti uh, um, anti-trade and anti-EU uh, forces have been able to enter into that space is because it was sort of seeded by the left um, and, and parties that had originally been critical of, uh, of, of this process ended up deepening it. Um, certainly that was true of the Democratic Party. It was true, I'm Canadian and American citizen, but in Canada, the Liberal Party had campaigned fiercely against free trade and NAFTA and then you know pushed it even further once they were in office. And this is why Hillary Clinton was an incredible opponent for, to Trump on this, because even though she campaigned against the Trans-Pacific Partnership, you know, voters are smart enough to be like, hey, didn't you negotiate it when you were at the State Department? You know, you can't. Yes, it was quite a U-turn, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. It seemed odd. But, but surely but the European Union Union is supported by Goldman Sachs. It's supported by financial services, the ease of financial services going across borders. As you say, there was maybe a confusion, but an understandable one that people thought, well, the EU is there to back big business and it's good for it's good for the automakers and it's good for the banks, but it's not very good for me. So were people right to vote to leave the European Union? Whether they were right or wrong, they did. (laughs) So I think the issue is, you know, what 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 do people want now? Uh, and it, it's striking being here in the UK, and I, it, it feels like so much of the debate is focused on uh, the technicalities around uh, this hard hard Brexit, soft Brexit, but the substance of it, of, you know, what is the end goal? What kind of country do people want to live in when this is over is not what is being debated, right? I mean, what what what, what values should govern British, British society? And I think it would be very healthy if, if, if that became the discussion instead of this very technical uh, one. Maybe just to finish off, I just wanted to read a little... Um bit from the from the very towards the end of your book you do come up with some solutions you say it's not enough just to say no you need to have some notion of uh where where things might go afterwards and i I was struck by a little bit in the back where you talk about uh the caring majority and you talk about um the debate at the moment has an intensity set to nuclear so this is very divided and i certainly find that you know being a journalist covering uh, some of these big issues that you're talking about in your book how problematic is just the language that the, the fans bases of these two sort of ways of approaching the world whether it's bernie sanders or donald trump or jeremy corbyn or Theresa may or whoever it might be that the language itself has become so aggressive 
that it is actually very difficult to define what might be right or wrong. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, that part you're referring to is a little section I have about killing our inner Trump. Yeah, um, you make a really yeah. interesting point that even we're all guilty of making because a lot of your book is quite angry it talks in in very um uh, clear unambiguous terms about your dislike of billionaires of the um it isn't uh, personal though i would argue with that right I, you know i i it's not it's not about the individuals and this is this is what i think the what needs to happen is we need to find a way to speak about systems uh, that is not about vilifying the individual people involved. Politically, I don't think it's smart to do so because I think you can get rid of individuals. And if you aren't talking about the systems that created incentives for that kind of behavior, then they're just going to be replaced with other individuals that will do the same thing. I mean, one of the things that I like about Bernie Sanders, and I think it's true of Corbyn too, is that they have a way of talking about inequality and the need for a fairer economic system. And yes, um, that does mean confronting power. It's not, you know, it isn't this whole mushy everybody, you know, like Hillary Clinton ran on this, like, love wins campaign. It's sort of love like... Love Trump's hate. Yeah. Love Trump's hate. And, you know, I, what I liked about Corbyn's campaign is, you know, for the many, not the few. It, the Democrats would look at that and go, well, I like the for the many part, but let's cross out for the few because, you know, we still want to get donations from Goldman Sachs. <laughs> and... And ultimately, that is that dodge, you know, that 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 fudge, if you will, is not it, it is 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 going to cost us because the money does need to come from somewhere. But there is a way of making it not about the few individuals uh, and vilifying particular business people, um, but instead look, uh, focusing on this system that is failing the vast majority of people. Um, and and I, I do think it needs to be depersonalized. And, and I do think our way of debating, particularly online, and, and this is not just, you know, debates between the few and the many. I mean, what I'm really concerned about is how people who are supposedly on the same side treat each other and uh, destroy each other. And, um, and at this moment where so much is on the line and where there is so much potential, where, you know, I don't, I don't think, you know, in my adult life, I have never seen progressives get this close to power with a transformative agenda, whether it's Bernie Sanders winning 13 million votes or Jeremy Corbyn winning 13 million votes. We are now finding that there is an appetite for deep change, for real justice. So it means that people have to get their act together and stop trying to destroy each other at the slightest provocation, which doesn't mean that you don't criticize, uh, but it does mean you don't burn the house down um, at the first provocation. G so, Naomi, give, give us what is that progressive offer that is going to get people out and maybe Jeremy Corbyn didn't quite do it this time, but yeah. could mean that Jeremy Corbyn could do it next time and whoever the new Bernie Sanders is, or indeed Bernie Sanders, could do it next time? I think it's about connecting the dots between overlapping crises. Um, you know, the crisis of inequality, crisis of racial injustice and racial violence, um, and mass incarceration, gender exclusion, but also the climate crisis. And, and for me, the fact that, that we are just out of time on climate change. You know, the chapter in the book on that is called The Climate Climate Clock Strikes Midnight because this the, the next five years are, will determine whether or not we're able to keep temperatures below what our governments in Paris defined as catastrophic warming. 
So we have to get our act together fast. This is why if you notice like a sort of sense of urgency in my voice. Certainly isn't there. And in the book. I'll tell you, anybody who really immerses themselves in climate science, everybody who I know feels it. It's hard. It's hard to just, you you know, I I have a Beckett quote in the book, the fail again, try again, fail again, uh, fail better, which has often been a motto used on the left of just like, yeah, we make mistakes, we fix mistakes, and we do make mistakes, but we can't keep making the same mistakes over and over again because we don't have time to, to fail, to, to, to keep failing <laughs> and failing better. We actually have to start winning. Um, and, and, and so I think that, that, that climate change, because it means we have to change our economy in a really radical way, we have to change how we generate energy very, very quickly. We have to change how we move ourselves around, how we live in cities, how we share the resources of this planet. It provides a once-in-a-century opportunity to fix multiple problems at once. If we are going to get off fossil fuels as quickly as we need to, well before mid-century. Well, that means that we can build a much fairer energy system. It means that we can have, rather than having a small group of corporations control the energy sector, we can have energy democracy, which means that every community could generate its own renewable energy, keep the resources in their community, use it to pay for services like daycare and healthcare and education. Um, and we can also have a polluter pays framework where the people who are most responsible for this crisis, and we're not going to focus on them as individuals, but as part of this system, um, you know, are going to be paying the most so that we're not offloading the cost of this transition onto the most vulnerable, which I think is what has made it so hard to get the public behind uh, climate action is that it has been climate policy has been introduced in a way that is really systematically unjust. It has offloaded so much of the cost onto the people who are least able to pay while letting the people most responsible off the hook. Are you going to run, Naomi? Why don't you run for office? I don't think if you're a Canadian citizen, I don't think you can run for the president, maybe, but uh, maybe maybe an office at some point in the future? Well, I I don't think I'm cut out for it, um, but I am excited to, to, to help people who are running um, and helping design platforms. And this is part of what we're doing with uh, the project that you mentioned uh, that, that is described in the book, The Leap, The Leap Manifesto, which people can read about at theleap.org. Naomi, it's been a great pleasure spending a bit of time with you explaining uh, your book. No is not enough. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.